This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey, movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing, Monica? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good as well. I'm very excited uh, to talk Dallas Buyers Club with you in more detail. Uh, this is part two of episode number 75 of Cinema Fix. So if you're looking for part one, uh, you're listening to the wrong file. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher and email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 336-793-2509. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, uh, basically this is the program on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films. And each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers, and it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one, or at least after you've seen the film. Uh, Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening right now and go check out part one of this episode. Uh, We are very privileged to be joined uh, by a special guest. I'm, I'm so happy to finally have him on the show. He is an author, a speaker, and an activist. He's also uh, the co-host of The Film Talk, which is the best film-related podcast I'm not involved in. Mm-hmm. So go check that out. Uh, his book, How Movies Help Save My Soul, played a major role in convincing me to study film. So uh, I, I will always owe him a debt of gratitude. Uh, and his new book, Cinematic States, was just uh, released. And you can find that for purchase online at cinematicstates.com and through places like Amazon. Gareth Higgins, welcome to Cinema Fix. Uh, hi there. Thanks for, for having me on. You've always been really, really kind about me and my work. And I'm disturbed to be even taking partial responsibility for why you studied, <laughs> studied film. Um, I, 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 I think you're doing just fine without me, but uh, it's, it's great to be in conversation with you. Yeah, that, that's nice of you to say, Gareth. Uh, but no, re- really, your, uh, your perspective on film is unlike uh, anyone else's that I've ever met or, or read or listened to. you got to be careful when you say things like that. That sounds like what Mozart said to Salieri and Amadeus <laughs> after he premiered his, his, his opera. You know? When you tell someone, they're, like, I mean, Hitler's work was like nobody else's either. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean oh, that, no. it's, that it's good. I've ruined Gareth. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) uniqueness is not necessarily a mark of high quality. Well, in your case, it is. Oh, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, We're going to be recording a special uh, bonus segment with you uh, after this, where we talk a little bit more about you and the book and movies and and life in general. But for now, can you can you just briefly describe the book to our to our listeners? Just give them the quick elevator pitch so they can go out and buy it right away. Cinematic States is, is a book about America using the lens of one movie for, for each state and the District of, of Columbia. So I took w- at least one film that had been uh, at least partly set for each state and uh, wrote about what I think it says about America, the American dream life, how uh, U.S. Americans understand themselves and what the rest of the world might not realize about the U.S., given that it's uh, probably the most known and the least understood 
nation proportionate to the amount that people think they know about it. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> I would agree. I would agree with that. And it's worth pointing out that you were not born in the United States. Yeah, I'm from Northern Ireland. I've been living in the U.S. for the last six years, and uh, but growing up where where I came from wasn't a whole lot to occupy my time with. Uh, as a kid in Northern Ireland, we were living through the the, the civil conflict that thankfully has uh, been mostly resolved now. Uh, so I went to the the movies uh, instead, and of course, the vast majority of the movies I saw as a child and a teenager were Hollywood movies. So my perspective on on the U.S. was, I, I would say, sixty percent Hollywood, forty percent Reagan. <laughs> so I had to, I had to, I had to, I had to move here to correct that. Okay, <laughs> should hope so. Glad you didn't stay away. <laughs> now it's you know, ninety percent movies, eight percent walking, two percent Daily Show. all right well uh, originally we we, at some point we discussed maybe having you on to discuss nebraska because that was a movie titled nebraska so how very appropriate (laughs) thing is though you know nebraska has ruined the second edition of the cinematic states book because it means i have to get rid of teen wolf oh Oh, no (laughs) an iconic film of deep philosophical richness if ever there was one Well, uh, we've we've got the next best thing. We're going to be talking about Texas, maybe a little bit. Oh, awesome! We're gonna, awesome. We're going to be talking uh, <laughs> Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, before we really get started, though, here's a clip. Do you like this dress? Because I think the neckline's a little plunging. Rayon, the whole purpose of this study is to determine if ACT is helping people. Come on, Amy. You know there ain't no helping me. That doesn't mean I'm going to stop trying. Why are you so good to me? Bless your little heart. Just promise me you'll show up for the rest of the trial. I promise you that I will try my very best. I want you to mean it. All right, Gareth. uh, I know that like me, you just saw this film pretty recently. So it's fresh on your mind. What did you think of Dallas Buyers Club? Well, I think it's a it's a wonderful film. It's it's um, like uh, like a film like Rebel Without a Cause or Jaws. Um, it takes ordinary uh, people in extraordinary circumstances, tells a truthful story about what it's like to be human and to struggle with uh, great adversity, uh, and also manages to do it in a way that's supremely entertaining and not cheaply moving um my overall and, and, and initial feeling is that this is just a, a lovely film it's exactly what multiplexes need to be devoting more of their time to it proves that it's possible to do something really serious and really fun and by fun i just mean engaging and entertaining at the same time uh, and of course it has an important place in in film and cultural history in that it represents to my mind Absolutely. The mainstreaming of queer stories and of stories about AIDS that everybody said Philadelphia represented. But really, go, you know, go back and look at Philadelphia. It's a very dated film. Mm-hmm. With all respect to Jonathan Demme, you know, he, he was pioneering something there. But now the film looks intimidated. The film looks scared to, to be real about um, 
about gay life and about uh, same-sex relationships, you know, the kiss between Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas, you know, it's it's almost invisible. <laughs> Compare that with the Seth Rogen, James Franco spoof Kanye West, Kim Kardashian video that <laughs> came out this week. Yeah, Bound 2. Yeah. It's now become mainstreamed for two men to make out on TV and it can be played for laughs without it being homophobic um, and it can be played tenderly. So those are my, those are my initial impressions about, about um, Dallas Buyers Club and the moment that, that we are in, in history. There are, of course, having been mentored by the, the master of pointing out imperfections, my co-host Jet Lowe, I do have some more critical points to make, but uh, that's how it hit me. I think all three of us are, are overall on the same page. Uh, Monica, in part one, you and I discussed how we, we really liked this film overall. I was not expecting to like this film as much as I did, Gareth. I, I, I was just kind of expecting it to be one of those kind of sentimental, melodramatic, based on true events movies about a guy overcoming adversity. And I don't know about you, but I was surprised at how restrained director uh, Jean-Marc Vallée seemed at times. There are there are major moments in this film that I feel like other directors would really focus on them and really draw them out. And in this movie, he just kind of simply presents them and then moves on. And I appreciated that. I, I thought it kept the film feeling grounded as, you know, yes, these are important emotional beats that are happening, but they've happened and they're important, and and now let's continue on. Well, I, I think you're one of the things you must be referring to there is the the death of one of the central characters, uh, and uh, which I thought was was handled with far more respect than if there had been swelling strings on the soundtrack and a death speech and a kind of lots of people crying and hugging each other because it's a little bit like the the fact that you know most people who died worldwide yesterday died peacefully of old age in their sleep. It wasn't spectacular. And most deaths uh, or many deaths in hospital aren't spectacular either. This director trusts us to know this guy is dying. It's awful. And it's somewhat anonymous. And that's the point. That's, that's part of the point of the horror of the invisibility of what happened to people who were in the first and the second and the third tranches of, of people who were killed by AIDS. The filmmaker understands something about catharsis. And if I can say something about that, um, it reminded me a little bit of an experience I had when I was watching 12 Years a Slave. There's a point in 12 Years a Slave where if you're if you've never cried at a movie before, <laughs> this is even if like you never cry, this is the point where you're going to cry. And I found myself deeply moved, but this strange thing happened, and it was resistance to tears, partly because Steve McQueen was not playing this moment for catharsis, and partly because I was watching this representation of a story, and I think it's the most powerful representation of that story I've ever seen. And it's not my story. I don't own the story of slavery. At best, I get to learn about it. And as someone who inherits white privilege, I get to try to take some stumbling uh, efforts towards 
making some kind of amends to whatever degree one person is able uh, to do. It wasn't my story. And I felt that the tears I would have cried in that moment would have been cathartic tears that would have made me feel better about the fact that I was that I was doing something so noble as watching 12 Years a Slave. Mm. Um, I had a similar experience with, with, with Schindler's List. It's not my story. The tears that you cry, they can be tears of mourning. Of course they can. I was going to say of empathy, right? Exactly. Mourning or empathy for sure. And there's a fine line between that and the kind of catharsis that allows you to go away and do nothing. Uh, the, car, the catharsis that, that lets you feel like somehow I've actually done something about slavery. Somehow I've actually done something about AIDS. Somehow I've, I've done something about homophobia just by crying at a moment in a film. And that's, that elevated this, this movie for me. Besides the fact that that it avoid it tries to avoid cliche uh, as much as possible. There's a far there's another much more innocuous avoidance of cliche that I'm, I'd like to talk about in a minute. But that's the the feeling I had about the way emotion is handled in this film is it's it's honest and far more respectful and humane than the kind of roller coaster punch that leaves you feeling like you actually achieved something by watching a story about somebody else's suffering. That's a that's a really good point, and that's something we we brought up a few weeks ago about Twelve Years a Slave, and we 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 tried to figure out, you know, is the movie too distant? Is it not distant enough? Mm. You know, to what extent will people be able to watch this film and and go away feeling like, well, that's enough? You know, I've done I've done my part. Huh. I sat through uh-huh. Twelve Years a Slave, so good for me. And I think it's interesting you bring that point up regarding Dallas Buyers Club as well because this isn't my story either you know i wasn't alive in in 1985 i was a a year away from being born so this isn't anywhere close to being uh, my story um but i still i found the film very moving at times uh without you know i i I wasn't sitting there weeping but Mm. i did find myself thinking wow this movie really is touching me in a way that i did not expect and it, it didn't feel like it was really trying to do that. It wasn't trying mm. to make me cry. It was just mm-hmm. sort of presenting these things that happened mm-hmm. and allowing me to come to that myself. There were a few other moments where I was just surprised at how restrained it was. The key moment that really just kicks off the whole plot is when uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, Juan Rudruff, is down in Mexico and he's meeting with uh, this this doctor down there who doesn't have his own practice in the United States anymore. And he kind of just looks at the guy and says, well, you know, we can make a lot of money off of this. Cut. Yeah. Now the plot is moving along. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it for the aha moment, you know. <laughs> and then uh, uh, later on, there's this subplot running through the film about his relationship with his friends and how they view him now that he has HIV. And there, there's a moment of reconciliation between him and uh, his best friend that mm. is played, as far as I can recall, there's no dialogue in this mm-hmm. scene. It's just a very quick moment of them sitting together in his house in one shot and his friend giving him the medicine he needs. And that's mm-hmm. it. And, th- and that's all mm-hmm. we need. And I feel mm-hmm. like other movies would have really, really played that up and the, they would have had this really... Uh, intense emotional conversation mm-hmm. about their friendship, and this movie recognizes that that no, you know, sometimes that's not what happens in real life. 
Sometimes it's just people do things and it's their actions that matter and we get the point. Um, and I was, I was really impressed by that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's got that subtlety. Can I, can I mention this innocuous, potentially facetious lack of cliche as well that really put this film in another category? You ever read uh, the, the devil's candy, the uh, wonderful book about the making of uh, uh, Brian De Palma's version of the bonfire of the valleys? No, I I haven't read that. So it's the best gossipy book about how not to make a film. And um, there's, a, there's a whole section uh, in that book dedicated to how, I believe it was the, the first assistant director, who De Palma had go and shoot a, a scene of a plane taking off. And he set him the challenge or the, a, the AD set, uh, you know, put, put it up to De Palma that he was going to create the most uncliched shot of a plane taking off in cinema history. Uh, And until you think about that, you probably haven't noticed that every shot of a plane taking off in most movies is a a cliche. Um, (laughs) um, So when I see an uncliched plane taking off shot, I know I'm in the hands of a real director. And this film, Dallas Buyers Club, not only has an uncliched shot of a plane taking off, it has a round the world try to smuggle drugs into the country montage yes. that, mm-hmm. t- that takes in, uh, I think, uh, Japan. Certainly, I saw Amsterdam. I saw London and Singapore mentioned on a sign mingled in with uncliched taking off and landing shots of, of planes. And it takes no more than 30 seconds for him to go around the world. And it's a little bit like that scene you mentioned at the end where he, he's, you see that he's connected to his friend. Again, you don't have, you know, and uh, I'm really tired. I've just gone to Amsterdam, and goodness, I, I, when I was in Amsterdam, I saw the canals. There's so much that's just done, bam, quickly. We're, we're watching the speed with which this guy, Ron, uh, would have had to live his life uh, for his own health. And anyway, I, I give this film my award for... Most uncliched plane taking off scene 2013, (laughs) possibly in the 2010s thus far. Wow. Although there is a slightly uncliched plane taking off scene in Cloud Atlas because the plane blows up. Right. (laughs) Which is sad. What you just said about that that quick little montage, it made me realize that, you know, a, a lot of movies... I think, would present this guy, Juan Woodruff, as this almost mythic hero, you know, and they they would... uh, Yes. You'd have that montage, but there would be cool music playing, and they'd really just spruce it up and make it look like, oh, man, look at this guy. He's he's so great. He's going around the world. He's uh, traveling to all these exotic locations. He's helping the people. He's Yeah, so he can help people and, and, and smuggle in these drugs. And again, this movie just kind of downplays that. It's just like, no, he's just a guy trying to survive, doing what he has to do. Yeah, in that case, it's a far more valuable document of how to change the world than Braveheart. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I'm not kidding. I mean, there, there is, there's, to, to, to my mind, mythic heroes have their place, but that place is, to, is not either to tell me the truth, nor is it about inspiring me to change 
myself, and you know, there's people who might think, what the hell's a film critic talking about changing yourself? Well, if art is not intended as an irritant uh, to society, uh, I'm not sure what it's what it's for. Mm-hmm. Uh, if beauty is not supposed to, is not uh, there to invite us to something better, I haven't yet heard. Uh, a definition of a reason for for beauty that uh, that satisfies. So this guy feels entirely real. I mean, it's very clear he's not portrayed as someone who doesn't want to make money off what he's doing. You know, a really Hollywoodized version of this story would have pretended that he didn't charge anybody four hundred bucks a month. There is one moment where we see that he does he gives away the medicine for whatever someone can afford, but. That doesn't mark a shift in the tone of the film. It doesn't. It doesn't indicate that he then started doing that uh, for everyone. He was trying to make money out of this, mm-hmm. and he was trying to save his own life. Again, there's there's a tendency to believe that big storytelling requires a lack of realism, a lack of credible character. I think we're living in a time where that's changing because I've seen a lot of films this year where I feel. We've seen people who feel like ourselves. Um, you, you might want to call it the Breaking Bad effect because one, one of the amazing things to me about Breaking Bad, I mean, the key reason why Breaking Bad deserves the accolades that it's received is that I can't think of a decision that a character made in Breaking Bad that an ordinary person would not also have conceivably made mm-hmm. in real life. Everything in Breaking Bad felt like it could actually happen that a person could actually descend like that. Mm -hmm. And in this story, everything he does feels like, yeah, an ordinary person stuck in those circumstances could do all those things. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned how he's he's in it for the money and for his own survival. I like how this movie didn't try to make us forget that in many ways he's not a very nice person. Sure. He is downright homophobic most of the time. And yet this movie, you know, this isn't one of those movies where he begins the film a completely homophobic person. And then now at the end, he's this wonderful guy who loves everybody. I still think at the end of the film, he he is a little bit homophobic. Mm -hmm. But because he wants to survive and because he wants to, to make some money, he does form a connection with people that he otherwise would would never have talked to. Well, of course, I mean, and that's how we change. You know, we, we confront our prejudices in the, in the face of individuals who, who we meet, who we're thrown together with. You know, the notion, there's a kind of an ideological fundamentalism out there that suggests that we've somehow all got to be able to change overnight. Right. And that any time you look, look at what happens whenever public figures screw up and then apologize for it, certainly in, in, in the UK and in Ireland, where, where, where I'm from, uh, a public apology by a politician is usually the immediate precursor to them having to resign. It's almost never responded to with a thank you. <laughs> it's almost never responded to with, appreciate your apology, we all fail sometimes. Uh, it's certainly never responded to the way I think a genuine apology warrants, and that is a, genu- a genuine apology should build more trust. Right. <laughs> I should actually be able to trust you more after you've apologized to me, because I've seen that you're someone who's willing to acknowledge your own mistakes, to examine yourself, to lead an examined life, and to rebuild. Now, maybe amends are required, and maybe some kinds of acts that show your consciousness about your apology are, are required. But we, so we, we seem to live in an age where apology 
that we've become so cynical as a culture that we don't extend the mercy that we would want for ourselves to people in public life because we've been taught that they're not really human. So when somebody says something prejudiced and then apologizes for it and says they're going to embark on an education process, for instance. I think of if you if you want to compare the difference. Remember when Brett Ratner said idiotic homophobic oh, things? Yeah. And, right. Yeah. And was removed as the um, producer of the Oscars. Compare his apology, which was accompanied by him agreeing with I think it was with Glad yeah. to meet with LGBT people and to learn more about his prejudice. Compare that with what Alec Baldwin has done this week, mm-hmm. where MSNBC has pulled his show and he responded by, because he used her, you know, really dehumanizing homophobic language, which he initially said he didn't know was homophobic, <clears throat> which is a bit like saying you don't know that the moon is in the sky. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, or that E.T. E. is cute. Um, or that, or that Alan Rickman does a really good German accent. <laughs> what he's done is he said this is that the fundamentalist uh, lobby of the gay rights movement has, you know, got my show uh, removed, and he said I have to take some responsibility. And even from a, str- a political strategy perspective, he's getting it wrong. Even if he didn't want to be yeah. sincere, what he should do is say, you know, what I really, I this situation is teaching me that I don't know what I don't know. And I would like to find out more about what I don't know. And I understand that I'm not an expert on what the experience of being of being queer is in the United States. And it's not up to me to decide whether I'm homophobic or not. Just like for me as a white person, it's not up for me to evaluate my own racism. Sorry, my own anti-racism. It's up for it's it's for people of color who I know to when I ask them to, to help me figure out how wrong I'm getting this. <laughs> it's not up to me to give myself an award for being an anti-racist. So the thing, and I'm, it's kind of long, long-winded and you can cut as much of that as you, as you want to. The point, the point I'm trying to make is that Matthew McConaughey's character feels like he's on a real, honest journey. Right, right. He doesn't change overnight. And he brought up every, that whole thing about uh, an apology. I don't think he ever apologizes to anybody in the film. He never. Yeah, actually, I don't. I don't think he does. He never I says, uh, he "Hey, uh, hey, Jared Leto, sorry for being such a homophobic asshole to you." You know, I, I, I feel like at the end of the film, he probably still is kind of homophobic. <laughs> but the, the, yeah. but but this movie is kind of about how if you can find a common goal very least you can start mm. to make some small steps in building community with 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 people you otherwise would have ignored there's also that scene in the grocery store where he stands up for jared leto right which i absolutely adore and like jared leto's face afterwards it's like you you know you defended my honor <laughs> <laughs> right so i think there there is a little bit more change in him like he sees the humanity of other people and I think that's the big turn where it wasn't just like, oh, it's them versus us or it's them and they're the outsiders. It's that, no, these are also people. Right. You don't talk to them like that. Right. Um, so, so yeah, overall, I, I really liked Dallas Buyers Club. I don't have a whole lot more that I want to I know. It's such a good it. film. It's kind of hard to 
complain about it. Yeah, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing to really critique other than say, hey, it was uh, it's good. You should go see it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just I do want to say one last thing, and, and that is uh, with a, with a film like like this, it's an interesting companion piece. Uh, to the documentary How to Survive a Plague. Oh, uh, yes. That was, that was around uh, last year, and I, I think is on, on Netflix. And yeah. um, for obvious th- shared thematic concerns, but uh, what's more important is, you know, this this film is going to attract Oscar buzz and talk of awards. And as I was watching it and thinking uh, about that and about, you know, the point of the Oscars, we give awards to films partly because the I, I would say that the sort of the shadow, the less mature, the lower self reason for giving awards is because we want to look good mm-hmm. by awarding this thing that the culture has decided is valuable. And there are almost, you know, there are Oscar voter proof films like Schindler's List, which could not, which couldn't not have one best picture because it's again it's like seeing a kitten and not picking up the kitten and stroking the kitten you know that's what you do with kittens and that's what you do with Schindler's List is you give it awards and that's I mean, and I'm not commenting about the when I say that that's not a negative comment about the film itself I think it's a great it's it's a great film it it has that challenge that I'm ambivalent about regarding cathartic tears mm-hmm. although Monica I think I think you're 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 right when you talk about tears of empathy. Uh, being different from tears of of catharsis, so there's going to be a lot of people talking about Dallas Buyers Club, and the lower the lower self or the less mature self is going to want to give it awards to show that we stand in solidarity with the right causes and that we like Matthew McConaughey. And that's all fine, but I realize there is a higher ideal at work, and that is about changing the cultural conversation and about using the tools that we have at our disposal to mark things that are important in the absence of better tools. There are better tools for memorializing the lives destroyed by AIDS than an entertaining film. There are better amends than an entertaining film. There are needs that prevail today, people left behind, people who were bereaved, and the people who still suffer uh, with HIV AIDS. Of course there are better tools than a movie. But what the film industry has is movies and award ceremonies and money. Mm-hmm. And so if this film attracts awards buzz, it's partly because it's emblematizing for us something that we want to care about. And if that brings more attention to the deeper need, the deeper need than an entertaining story is to memorialize the hundreds of thousands of lives that were deeply, deeply affected by a social structure that not only at best didn't pay attention, at worst it wanted these people to die. Mm-hmm. It wanted to scapegoat these people. If Awards Buzz brings more attention to that, then so be it. The same goes for 12 Years a Slave. Mm-hmm. But let's not get ahead of ourselves about what the value of the award is. I always remember that the night that Schindler's List won all the Oscars, winner after winner got up and said, we made this film so that this would never happen again. And 10 days later, the Rwandan genocide began. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just keep having a deeper conversation about it. And accept as a bonus that this is actually a pretty great movie. Yeah. At the same time as having something very powerful to say. Right, right. And I, I think it's easy for people to get caught up in uh, the awards buzz just because 
a movie has the appearance on the surface of a, as you said, a movie that just should be awarded without actually discussing what the movie, how the movie's functioning, what it's trying to get at, whether or not it leads us to be better people or, or to approach these issues in, a, in another way. I'm glad that Dallas Buyers Club is one of the films that actually would live up to that. And I think it, it, it's going to be easy for a lot of people to want to give awards to Matthew McConaughey for his performance just because he lost so much weight and he was clearly so, yeah. so right. committed to the role. You know, it's easy to look at a movie and say, oh, well, of course you should give him the award because look at all everything he went through. <laughs> and and this is one of the rare cases where I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, not only did he commit to it in that way, but he also just gave a great performance and the way the film depicts his character, as we've been talking about, I think is really interesting and, and, and it's very different from most other films. So that, I think, is, is what I hope people will be talking about, in addition to the fact that he looks like Christian Bale in The Machinist or, or Michael Fassbender in Hunger. <laughs> or Jared Leto in, uh, in Dallas Buyers Club. Oh. <laughs> I think there's, there's potential, there, there is a potential um, rogue variable here, is that the two of them might cancel each other out for the skinny Oscar award. <laughs> You can only give one skinny Oscar a year. I don't think there's been has you know has there been a year in which two people who lost weight for the role both won an Oscar? Um, <laughs> someone, one of your listeners should fact check that. <laughs> yeah, the chances of him winning the Oscar are heightened by the three sequel or the three prequels to Dallas Buyers Club, which you know he's just been in, in Magic Mike and, and and Mud and Killer Joe, where suddenly he emerged as a great actor after yeah. all these years. Oh well, okay. Let's let's be fair. He was always a great actor. Listen, Andrew. <laughs> he was. He just didn't get to show it. Mm. And the way to, to evaluate, you know, you know how you know that a Matthew McConaughey film is going to be good. Do you know how you know? How? You just look at the poster. <laughs> If he's standing at a 45-degree angle leaning on a woman, <laughs> it's not going to be a good movie. That is true. <laughs> that is true. It is true. How many Matthew McConaughey posters have him leaning, standing up leaning on a woman? A lot. <laughs> yeah. Darn, I'm just going to stick up for How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I like that one. <laughs> how to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. <laughs> Don't count it out. Maybe all the I could do without all the other ones, but I'm keeping that one. Maybe in 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 one lifetime you can have one leaning on a woman poster. <laughs> there we go. You can't expect to have eight of them and, <laughs> and them be good. Yeah, that's true. That is a good point. That is a good point. So basically, what we've learned is that if you want to win an Oscar, don't make a movie in which on the poster you're leaning up against a woman. Got it. Don't be leaning on a woman and lose weight, but don't appear in the same film as someone else who's also lost weight. <laughs> Because they can't tell between you, you know? Oh. <laughs> we could go on. I don't know that anybody's interested. <laughs> it is continuing on this, that, and it's starting to feel like I'm becoming slightly offensive. I don't mean that. I've been trying to lose weight for years. They need to cast me. Yeah, you, you just need the right role to come along. <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up for part two of our discussion of Dallas Buyers Club here on Cinema Fix. Uh, don't forget to tune in next week when we'll be discussing uh, something. We're not quite sure yet. Maybe we'll either be discussing one of this week's uh, new releases or we might take the week off because uh, 
We've got a couple shows in the pipeline we need to get out, but we'll be back uh, at the latest in, in two weeks uh, with another review of one of the big upcoming holiday releases. This is Oscar season, so there's a, there's a lot of stuff that we, uh, we have to talk about. We'd love to get your feedback on the show. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to us through iTunes and Stitcher. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. That really helps us get the word out about the program. You can also donate to us through the website. We really appreciate your help. And don't forget to check out other great shows on Film Geek Radio, including The Thin Place, The Nerdy Projectors, uh, The Briefing Room, which is all about the third season of Homeland, and uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. cast, which is all about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC. Uh, Gareth, it's been great having you on the show. Finally, I'm Thanks glad that you, could, uh, that you could stop by and talk with us. And um, we will be doing another bonus conversation with you uh, afterwards, so people should stay tuned for that. Uh, where can people find you online? Where can they buy your book? How can they get in touch with you? How can they follow Gareth Higgins? GarethHiggins.net is my website. TheFilmTalk.com is the podcast I co-host with Jetlo, which we're going to be relaunching uh, in a new and exciting way in just about a month's time. And um, cinematicstates.com is where you can pick up the book. And uh, you're on Twitter. At Gareth Higgins B. Yes. B-E. All right. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on Twitter and Tumblr at mcastimovies. That's M-C-A-S-T-I movies. And they can also find my work reposted on the Boston Online Film Critics Association website at bofca.com. You can find some of my writing at moviemezzanine.com and pathios.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know you're a listener, and I'll be sure to follow you back so we can continue the conversation. I'm Andrew Johnson. I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema and watching all of the uh, movies with skinny people. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!